Well, if, uh, if I haven't met you yet before, my name is Josh Carstensen. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, we're, gonna, we're just going to jump right into the Bible today. Oftentimes, I try to give context, kind of like, what's the theme that we're learning, and, and how does this fit in, and kind of how does this fit into the greater journey of where we are. And today, I'm just going to just kind of jump right in. We're going to let the Bible kind of speak for itself today, and we'll, we will land on a theme that has to do with Christmas, I promise you. But you may be, we may be halfway through the message today, and you're like, oh, is he going to talk about Christmas or not? I, I promise you it will get there eventually. But uh, in the spirit of that, I just need to jump in. I'm trying to make shorter sermons during COVID because we have three-year-olds and little kids in here, and we're trying to keep middle school kids socially distanced. And you can only do that for so long. So I'm told I've got to go a little bit quicker here, which is, which is a good thing. So uh, we're going to start. We're just going to go right into John chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. To honor God's word, I'm going to ask that we stand, and I'm going to read starting in verse 6. If you've got a Bible in front of you from one of the church Bibles, I think it's on page 886, and if you want to just listen, that's, that's great. So this is God's word. We read this, we read, we read in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you can take a seat. Like last week, this is one of those verses that you read, and if you're not familiar with kind of how John writes, if you're not familiar with the greater story, it can kind of seem like it comes out of nowhere. And it's not language, again, that we're very familiar with. You know, you read that there was a man sent from God, his name was John, and so kind of instantly you have a number of questions like, well, okay, who's John? Um, Why did he matter back then? And uh, really, why do I care about who this person sent from God named John? Why does that matter on my life? And so really just very simply, that's what I'm going to try to do today is answer those questions, is answer the question, who is this person that's being uh, introduced to us? Um, Why did he matter back then? And then hopefully, most importantly, trying to land the plane for us, like why should I care what happened back then and what bearing does it have on my life here today? And so to answer the question of who is John, uh, we do need to go back a little bit from our passage of last week and kind of the the main uh, narrative of the themes that we were learning last week, starting with this idea that in the Old Testament, God was building in himself, through himself, a people group and was building this really close relationship. And you know, if you've been with us for a number of months, we went through the, the story of the Exodus where the beginning of this nation really took place and kind of form and shape. And we saw that God brought this people out of slavery and kind of showed them, hey, here's, here's my nature and my character and my being. And, and we saw him giving of the law a bit and saying, here's how to know me and how to follow me and how to obey me. And this very close-knit relationship. But then, like we said last week, that relationship was shattered. Right? There was a very, very long time where, where that relationship went on radio silence and God wasn't speaking. You know, you, you look at this relationship and it had been 800 years since God did any overt, blatant miracle. Right? And by overt and blatant, you know, obviously God's doing miracles all the time. But overt, blatant miracle that we read about in the Old Testament, the last one that had happened, had happened with the prophet Elijah where fire came down from heaven. Again, a, a very overt, blatant miracle. It had been 500 years since anyone had seen uh, or witnessed an angel, right? We saw this in Daniel. And it had been 400 years since God had spoke at all. And so we talked about what it would have been like to be in this place where you had this relationship with God and then for the longest time God doesn't speak. 
right? And what that would have felt like, what it would have been like to have to go generation after generation, kind of relying on the stories of your grandparents and great-grandparents of this God who was, who was moving and working and who spoke through people. And then, you know, you, you had the written word, which is incredible, but you didn't have God actively speaking in a way and, and really kind of what that would have felt like. Right, I made the correlation of a friend of mine last week who, who started dating someone for a couple months. And then on date number one, it was good. And date number two, but date number three, she didn't show up and, and completely just didn't ever communicate with him after that. And, and what that would have felt like, right? Those feelings of discouragement, probably anger, confusion, frustration, right? And, and that was what it would have been like to some degree. That had to have been what it would have been like to be part of this nation who doesn't hear from God for 400 years, And so to understand where John's coming from in the beginning of John chapter 1, what we're going to do today is we're actually going to go to the last thing, the last communication that God gave to this nation. And so to do that, we're going to go to the very last book of the Old Testament, the very last chapter, and we're going to look at what did God say before this huge period of silence and why did that matter? Today we're going to see how there's this incredible correlation between what God said between this huge period where he said nothing and then what he says again as that silence is shattered. So to do that, we've got to go to the book of Malachi. Right? Malachi is writing to um, a number of people. He's writing to a people, a Jewish people, a Hebrew people, a people who uh, inherently know God. They know the traditions of Moses. They know the law. And ultimately, we have a people group who are religiously going through the activities, but as Malachi says, their hearts were far from him. Right? He talks about their religious participation in something like our church gathering. Like they're showing up, they're coming, but their hearts aren't there. Right? He talks about them doing the animal sacrifices, giving their offerings, yet their hearts not being there. Um, he, and I think at some level, like probably most of us at, at certain times in our lives, certain seasons have been there before, right? We know what it's like to kind of just go through the motions of like, man, okay, I know I should be here, so I'm going to be here, right? I, I know I should push click and, and give, but man, it just doesn't feel like it. And, and so we get that. We get that there are seasons that are like that. But it goes far beyond that in this book. It goes far beyond just showing up when your affections aren't there. Um, we, we look at, if you were to read the whole context of Malachi, you've got people whose lives on Thursday are completely separate from their lives on Sunday. They're radically living a life that was opposed to what God calls them to live. And the worst part about it, uh, at least from the writings of Malachi, is the priests, basically the equivalent of the pastors, they're condoning this type of behavior. They're basically saying, hey, as long as you show up on Sunday and as long as you give your money, like go live whatever life you want. Like you can go kind of live this. You can, you can be disobedient here. You can marry whoever you want. You don't have to obey the laws. As long as you're kind of just uh, going through these religious activities, you, you'll be okay over there. And God will have nothing to do with that. Um, the language that we read is incredibly vulgar um, about God's anger towards what this type of life would look like. Uh, I'm not going to read it here. I will certainly read it in the night service because that's a little bit more uh, uh, PG-13 but it, and it's not being recorded and there's not little kids in there. But go read Malachi chapter 2. Like God is very, very blatant in his language about for someone who knows better what it is to live a duplicitous life when you should be following him. And he gives this warning. So then at the end of Malachi, what we're going to read is we're going to read these warnings that are both a a stern warning, but also this incredible hope of what's to come. And so I'm going to read this um, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read all of Malachi 4. It's pretty short. 
Um, and we're going to, again, these are the last words that God spoke before 400 years of silence. So we read this in Malachi 4. He says, For behold, the day is coming like an oven, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, shall be, uh, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb or Mount Sinai for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the degree of utter destruction." Man, this is God. He's communicating uh, to this people group, and he's saying, hey, if, if you ignore me, and, and those of you who are going to continue on in this path, there will be a time when, the, when God will return, and he will judge you. But he makes this promise, and it's a fascinating promise, and this is why it's so important what John says here, is he says someone's going to come before this return of the Lord. If you notice there, I think it's in verse 5. He says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great day, before the awesome day, before the Lord comes. So for 400 years, what people were waiting for is, yes, they were waiting for God to return. Yes, they were waiting for this this day of the Lord that Malachi speaks of. But first, they were waiting for a sign. And that sign was, naturally, this man, Elijah, this prophet, Elijah, that they all knew about. Uh, In this point, it had only been, doing math on the fly, I didn't say this earlier, 300 years Eight, five, three hundred years. Elijah, he was one of the most recent uh, prophets in terms of something magnificent that was happening here. Um, but they're waiting for him. They're waiting for this Elijah guy to come. And why is this important? It's important because the very next thing that happens in the story of God's movement, we get from Luke chapter 1. Right? Remember, um, I, I said last week that John, as he's writing, he was the last of the gospel writers. Mark, Matthew, and, jo- and Luke had already written at this point. And John's not communicating to give all the details of the historicity of Jesus' birth. But Luke does. And so Luke starts with the very first words that we get of silence being shattered, of God communicating. And listen to what God says. He picks up exactly where he left off at the end of Malachi. Um, This is Luke 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before the Lord, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Most people say they were somewhere between 60 and 80 years old, had no children, wanted children, but that wasn't possible for them. Now, when he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. 
Okay, just painting a short, quick picture, this would have been a very, very um, high honor for Zechariah. This would have been a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. There were thousands of priests, and they were picked as a once-in-a-lifetime thing to be able to do this. It would have been a random lot. And here's Zechariah. He's going in, and, um, and an angel appears to him. This is the first angel that appeared, again, for 500 years. The last one was with Daniel. And this angel appears, and listen to what this angel tells him. He, spe- he picks up right where Malachi left off, and we see this in verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb." And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And hear this. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. This is a beautiful and really important phrase. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So here's... here's um, Zechariah, um, I'd love to give you the story of that, but it's just not where we're going today. But Zechariah gets this message and he says, hey, you guys have been waiting for Elijah to come for 400 years. That's what everyone's been waiting for. And I'm going to give you guys a son. I know you've wanted a son. I know you've wanted a child. You've been barren. I'm going to give you a son. His name's going to be John. It's a different John than the author John. This is John the Baptist. And he's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Which is super interesting because we, you have this anticipation that the actual reincarnate Elijah is going to come back and we're going to see this anticipation of people later. But that's not what was happening. What was happening is as John was coming, he was coming to be like Elijah. He wasn't supposed to be um, a, an exact like strange like ghost figure come back. This is Elijah. No, what was happening is this, this person was to come and to do the same things that Elijah does. Does. If we were to follow John the Baptist's life, and we will uh, kind of February, January at this point, um, John and Elijah had very, very similar lives. Both of them came on the scene seemingly out of the middle of nowhere and were bold proclaimers of people turning back to what God was calling people to do. Both were social outcasts. They were strange people of the desert. Um, we see some very vivid descriptions of their clothing, of the things that they wore. We see strange descriptions of the things that they ate. Um, we see that they were boldly proclaiming truth amongst the leaders that, that got them in trouble. Um, strangely enough, both of them fell into a lot of depression. They fell into despair. Both of them at times doubted their faith. Uh, you see where Elijah, he never actually dies, but Elijah is, is uh, brought to heaven on a flaming chariot. And you see John's death as he is ultimately put in prison and beheaded. But both of them were called to be a people who were set to go before a truth, set to be um, preparers of the things to come. And so when, Elijah, when John comes on the scene, he has come in the spirit, in the presence, to do the same types of things that, that Elijah did. And Jesus makes this very clear that we weren't actually waiting for Elijah to come back, but we were waiting for someone like Elijah. It's funny how as we study, it seems like more and more um, we, get, we, we get bigger illumination out of the same stories. But I'm going to go back to something that we've looked at, just touched on every week for the last couple weeks now, is this moment on, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right When Jesus, he goes up to this mountain, he's with Peter, James, and John, 
And he has this moment where his, it says his clothes uh, shone in radiance and his face was bright as the sun. Uh, it's terrifying to the disciples. God's glory is being shown through him. And then we see this moment where a cloud of God's glory comes and he, with an audible voice, speaks to everyone, says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the disciples are terrified, right? And remember, Jesus assures them and he tells his disciples, he says, hey, don't tell anyone who I am. Don't tell anyone yet until the Son of Man rises from glory, uh, rises from the dead. Don't tell anyone. And we've talked about all that so far, but what we haven't talked about yet was their conversation back on the way down the mountain. On the way down the mountain, the disciples, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but the disciples say, hey, um, I understand that God's glory is shining through you. I understand all this. It seems like you're the one who we've all been waiting for. But they say, where's John? Or where's Elijah? Sorry, we've been waiting for Elijah to come. Where is he? If you're, if God's glory is in you, all this nation's been waiting for Elijah to come. Where is he? And so we see Jesus's response to this in Matthew 17, verse 11. He answered, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. Right? So he's referring back now to John the Baptist when John was killed uh, and put in prison. And he makes this clear as he says this. And he says, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Verse 13, this is where it becomes very clear. It says, the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. You can go, again, I forget the verse, but it's Matthew 11, I know, where, uh, again, Jesus says, John, John the Baptist, was the Elijah that everyone was hoping to come as this predecessor. So why is this so important? Why is it so important that, you know, for 400 years we've been waiting for Elijah? Um, why is this so important to them? Well, it's, it's important for two reasons for them. First of all, it was important because God was promised to come. He was promised to return. But his return wouldn't happen until Elijah came. And so what we have in John is we have the fulfillment of a promise that was made 400 years ago. And so you have the opportunity for John once again, and this is kind of John's whole MO throughout the book, is to say, no, Jesus is God. He is the person that we've all been waiting for. He's not just giving the history of who Jesus is as a person. John's primary concern is to communicate that Jesus is God and for the people to believe that they had to experience Elijah first. And so this is why when we read this short little phrase, there was a man sent from heaven, his name was John, um, ultimately going back to you like, this is the Elijah that we've all been waiting for. This had huge implication to this nation of Israel. Absolutely huge. Now, what about us? Right, I think it's great to kind of hear these ancient stories, and, and man, there's so much goodness in the truth of that, but what about for you and I? Right, here we are, we're separated by a few thousand years from this story. What can we learn from this? Uh, kind of two just super quick things up front, and then I want to land on, on kind of the message of John that we see here in um, verses um, 7 and 8. But um, kind of the first thing that I think is really important for us to know, and, and we talked about this briefly last week, but is, is once again, if the Bible is true, if these words are really true, like if they actually happen the way that they describe that they happen, which I believe absolutely 100%, there's so much reason and evidence to believe that, we have just another reason to believe that God is consistent in his promises and what he says, right? Because for 400 years there was silence, but God said, hey, this is going to be the next thing that's going to happen. This is going to be the next move that I'm going to make. And 400 years later, the next time anyone says anything, it's, hey, remember that promise that I made back here? 
I'm fulfilling that promise through this person, John. And it's always different than what we expect, right? God's always working in ways that no one expected. They expected the reincarnation of this guy, Elijah. And um, ultimately, they killed John the Baptist. And there's going to be a bunch of confusion about that in later chapters. But God fulfills his promises. So again, I think for us, as we read the Bible and we read promises it says to you and I, we can take those promises to the bank. And so that is super encouraging. Not only that, but again, like I said earlier, um, it is this, um, this really important moment to say that, man, Jesus really is God. It's another evidence that points to these promises that were made, that were fulfilled, set him up to be this person that was promised about earlier. But now what I want to look at is, is what he actually says, um, is the message of John the Baptist. And I think this is so important, and this is where we're going to kind of land on the whole Christmas season for us and, and the implication it has for you and I. So let's listen about the words, starting in verse 7. It says this. It says, And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light. And this is super important. John was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Man, as, as we're preparing for Christmas, as we're kind of looking at this story Um, As we're looking at this history here, I I think um, what's so important is looking at the fact that John was a witness. He wasn't the light itself. And I think that as, um, as we live in America, as we can be people who love and can easily fall in love with the witness about something, we can simultaneously be people who get overly in love with the witness and forget about what the witness is pointing to. Right? So it says that John... Um, was was not the light. He was pointing to the light. And you look at Elijah, and you look at Elijah's life, and you look at John's life, both of them were unattractive. Both of them were social outsiders, but both of them had a message that said, hey, I want you to pay attention to the message, not to me as a person. And I think um, our kind of danger in living in a place where we have so many really, really good witnesses We have access to 24 hours, seven days a week, incredible witnesses. And I think we can fall in love with witnesses. I really do. I I think we can fall in love with authors. I think we can fall in love with preachers. I think we can fall in love with the way that certain people communicate certain truths. But I think what we see in the story of John is the reality that what matters is not John. It's not Elijah, but it's the witness that they are pointing to. See, we can spend all of our time thinking about what it would be like and to to have uh, this perfectly well-put-together witness and to fall in love with, oh, I wish this witness was like that, and I wish this witness was like that. But what we need to put our attention on is what is the witness pointing to? Do we long for the light that John talks about here, or do we long for really good stories about the light? So I um, I think we can fall in love with stories about the light, especially in a season where everything is a witness right here. Right, so I want you to go on a quick journey with me. The first time my wife and I ever went um, to Africa, we went in 2004. Uh, we had just finished uh, our first year of undergrad. She was in San Diego, and I was in uh, Orange County, California. And um, life in Orange County and San Diego were very different than life in Africa. And I remember landing uh, in Africa for the first time. I uh, we went to Ethiopia. went there for six weeks. And we landed uh, in the middle of the night. We got to the airport, and it was basically shut down. There was, you know, a few people moving around. The lights were kind of on dim. Um, it's kind of quiet, middle of the night. And uh, we, we leave the airport, 
and uh, for the first time I had kind of been in a scene where like you're leaving somewhere and there's armed guards with machine guns and like okay this is a little different and we step outside and what we step outside to I will never forget we step outside and the, and we get bombarded by literally hundreds of people there are um, people who from from everything that we could see were starving were hungry um, mostly children there were cripples. Um, we didn't even talk about the fact that I was going to share this. You remember this? It was, it was a very intense scene where like, people are grabbing onto your arms and there's little kids just saying, like, man, give me food, give me food, give money so I can buy food. And for the next six weeks, as we kind of went around the city, that was a very normal scene. Anywhere you go, you just get um, bombarded with people and, and saw just extreme levels of poverty, extreme levels of hunger that I'd only read about in books and seen in movies. And compare that to kind of what my experience with food was growing up. Right? Compare that with kind of the, the typical American experience with food. Right? When we think about food, like what do we think about? We think about, like, hey, you want to go out to dinner? Like, yeah, I'd love to go out to dinner. Where do you want to go? You want to go burgers? You want to go Thai? You want to go to Mexican? Or you think about, like, okay, let's go to Mexican food. Where do you want to go? I don't know. You want to go here? I don't know. Their, their chips are a little thick. Um, like, how about, how about this place? I don't know. Their salsa, not that good. And they charge for extra salsa, which is super annoying. You think about like, oh, let's go to this place. And ah, the ambiance isn't that good. It's always kind of cold in there. You got to wear an extra sweater. And again, like that's, that's just kind of the world we are used to when it comes to food. And not to say that that's a bad thing, right? But I think sometimes if we're not careful, I think sometimes if we're not careful, the same way that we can treat food is the same way that we can, we can treat our, our spiritual longing for what we need the most, right? Because when you're starving, what do you need? You realize that you need food. But when you have access to food all the time, you don't really even think about it. You think about all the extra things about food, about how it's prepared and how it's displayed and how it makes you feel. And I think that oftentimes that, that can become reality when it comes to what we talk about as a witness. See, John was a witness, me preaching right now, this is a witness. Everything Christmas is a witness. It's all pointing to something, right? Every single, like every song that we sing is a witness. Every Christian book you read, every gospel letter that you read, these are all witnesses. These are all things that point to something else, right? Like, every, like these evergreens, these lights, these oranges, like these oranges, I know they're strange for some of us. I get it. They were strange for me for a little bit too. They point to something. You know where these oranges come from? They're, they're this story of like St. Nicholas used to go around apparently and, and drop gold into something. And eventually that was replaced with people dropping oranges into stockings. And so it represents something. Christmas itself is a witness. It points to something. And I think as we're preparing for the Christmas season... I think it's really, really easy to get caught up in the witnesses of things. The witness of our family gathering, right? Family gathering itself is a witness. It's a witness to say that family exists because God is a father and has children and loves us, right? Celebration itself is a witness. It's a good thing. We should celebrate. We should celebrate because God exists. He created the world. He loves us and he wants to know us. That's worth celebrating. It is a, it's a witness to something. But again, I, I think if we're not careful, we can treat the Christmas season as like critiques of the witness. We can think so much about what this witness was like and what that witness was like. And what do we learn from the Bible about witnesses? Man, what happened to Elijah and what happened to John? They die. Witnesses leave. Right? Eventually, you'll get bored of the book. Eventually, you'll get bored of that song. Eventually, like we're going to throw all of this away at some point. Right? In, in, in three months from now, no one will remember anything that I'm saying as far as this message, other than hopefully 
the substance that the witness points to. Right? Because John dies, Elijah dies. You know, as we think about this Christmas, I think our witness is, like the witness of this Christmas is going to feel a little bit more dull than what we're used to. Right? It's not, we're not going to have quite the number of family around that we normally do. Right? We're not going to have quite the parties and quite the gatherings. And we can get a little bit dull about like, oh man, the witness isn't going to be as strong this year. But you know what is just as strong this year? Is what the witness is pointing to. The fact that uh, when John writes, when the author John, and he says this, he came as a witness to bear witness about the life that all might believe through him. Man, what we have this year in the substance of Christmas is never dull. It's the thing that gives us anything to look, on, to look forward to, to give us hope of anything that's supposed to last. And so as this Christmas, as we're preparing, as we're looking at all these different witnesses, as we're reading something that's a witness, as we're hearing something that's a witness, I want us to be people who are keeping our eyes on the light that is Jesus. Because that, my friends, listen to what Malachi says once again. But for you who fear my name, for you and I, that would be for those of you who put your trust in Jesus, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And if there's ever a season that we need healing, if there's ever a season where we just go, you know what I need? Like I need some hope of something better. We get that with Christ. He says, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. It's this reference to when something's born, this new life. Right? And, and for the first time, they, they leave the stall from where they were born, and they're just experiencing new life. They're running around, jumping and leaping. That's what salvation is. That's what happens when you put your faith in Christ. You have something to look forward to, this newness. And that's what we get with Christ. Christmas is the witness, like Malachi says, of the Son of Righteousness who came. So this week, as we focus on hope, my hope is that our hope isn't on the witness. The witnesses will come and go. But our hope is on the Son of Righteousness with healing in its wings and that we will leave here leaping like calves from the stalls because of the substance that is the light. Father, I thank you. I thank you for John who was a witness. God, I thank you for Elijah who was a witness. I thank you for the truth that when you went radio silence for 400 years, you picked up right where you left off. And you, you've shown again and again that um, you fulfill your promises. Very often they're not in ways that we expect. God, but as you came back, you came with a stronger and stronger witness saying that John wasn't the light, but he was pointing to the light. And God, so what we want to do is we want to be, able, be a people who really focus on that light. And what that light is, is your life that we need. And for some, God, we, we know you well. We have been trying to pursue that light for a long time. For others, God, maybe this is the first year where you're saying, I need hope. I need healing in my wings. And so that's as simple as saying, Jesus, you are God. God, as John said, as, as history has shown itself to be true, you truly are God. And you died. And when you died, you paid for my rebellion against you. God, you paid for my eternal separation from you that I am owed. And what I get with your death is I get life with you. And that is the true light. That's what light is. It's eternal life with you. And it's joy and hope sharing that light right now. 
God, give us the freedom to be able to know you and to walk with you in things that are true. And let us hold on to um, the, the, the truth that the witness points to. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.